Well, we're just a week away from celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here today on Graceful Truth, our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse, will spend the next couple of Sundays looking at this marvelous advent, this condescension of God, incomprehensibly becoming man. Join us, Graceful Truth, with Pastor Steve Converse is coming up next. Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, welcome once again to today's broadcast. We're going to spend time in God's Word, specifically Hebrews, unique book to look at for the holiday season, but Christmas is so much of God revealing Himself to us, and that's precisely what the writer of Hebrews intends to do with us in the first couple of chapters. So join us there in Hebrews, won't you? As we get things underway, here's Pastor Steve Converse with a couple of thoughts before we start our time together in Hebrews. Thanks, Andy. Well, there's only six more shopping days left until Christmas Day. I just wanted to make you aware that we will be having our Christmas Eve communion service from 6 to 7 p.m. this year here at Grace Bible Church, Redwood City. What a blessed way to honor the Christ this Christmas by spending an hour together with family and friends, singing carols, reading the Christmas story from the Gospels, celebrating the Lord's table, and fellowshipping one with another. That's Christmas Eve at 6 p.m. here at Grace Bible Church, Redwood City. We will also be having our Christmas Day service, Christmas morning, 10 a.m., to celebrate the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today we'll be introducing a series that will take a different approach to the Christmas story. This series is entitled, God's Final Word in His Son. And we'll be spending our time together for the next couple weeks in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. You go ahead and turn over in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. So many times this time of the year we have a series on Christmas and different messages and can't help but to uh, read the Christmas story over and over and over and over and over again. After a while, you're kind of looking for a little different angle on the narration of the birth of Christ. And if you look through the Gospels, it's kind of interesting that in the Gospels, the, the Christmas story really starts out with the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias the priest, Elizabeth his wife, who were very old. They weren't able to have children, and yet God miraculously allowed them to bear a son who was named John, who came the forerunner to the Messiah. And then you see the same angel, Gabriel, who appeared to Zacharias, appeared to a virgin who was named Mary, a girl of roughly about 13 years of age, tell her that she was going to have a baby without a man's help that the Holy Spirit was going to place a child in her womb and that the child would be none other than the Son of God as well as the Son of David, the one who would establish an eternal kingdom and salvation for all. He would be the Savior. His name was to be Jesus because he would save the world from their sins. And so as you follow that narration, you follow the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph right up to the birth of Christ and you talk about the shepherds and you look at their different place in society and maybe why God has chose them and you talk about the angels and their the heavenly appearance of angels at the birth of Christ 
And you see all this stuff going on in the Gospels. And it's really from a human perspective, you might say. You see all the different insights of these individuals as you read through the Gospels. But I think there's a different perspective that we find in the book of Hebrews on the birth of Christ. When you look throughout the Gospels, there's usually just a couple words that describe the literal birth of Christ. Usually it goes something like this, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. That's it. That's all that describes the literal birth of the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Mary, the Son of Abraham, Savior, Messiah, the Lord Jesus. This is the birth of all births, and that's all the Gospels gives to it, was one sentence, a couple words. But it's interesting, as you follow the birth of Christ through the New Testament, we see in the epistles that the writers don't necessarily look so much at it from a human perspective, the birth of Christ. But they really look at it from the perspective of deity, the perspective of God. Uh, When the Gospels accounts of the birth of Christ, just because it's over there, it doesn't mean that it's over in the rest of Scripture. As you go through the New Testament, you see it brought up over and over and over again. Now, in the New Testament, uh, the, the epistles, I should say, other than the Gospels, they don't talk about the shepherds. They don't talk about the wise men. They don't even talk about Gabriel or, or Joseph or even Mary isn't really mentioned. They don't talk about Zacharias or Elizabeth or John, and they even don't even mention Bethlehem or a stable. They don't talk about a manger or a feeding trough as it was. They don't talk about animals. They don't talk about a star. They don't even talk about Herod. They don't talk about all the innocents that were slaughtered at Herod's hand after the birth of Christ. They don't talk about any of that. What they talk about, when you come back to the epistles and you look at the birth of Christ, all they ever talk about is Jesus Christ. They focus on Christ, the Lord. And I think so many times at this time of year we get so caught up about Jesus being a little baby in a manger. And even though throughout the Gospels it says that that little baby is the son of the Most High and he'd be the Savior of the world and all that, um, there's nothing to identify that child as special from any other child. Not one thing. In other words, if you were there at that birth, you would look at that situation and go, it looks like a baby. looks like a newborn baby. There wasn't a halo over his head as the Catholics would have us to believe in some of their artwork and things like that. There wasn't a glow on his face. He was a newborn baby. He was a human, a baby, deity becoming man, and yet still remaining God. It wasn't possible to find any feature in that child that you would look and say, wow, this is the Savior. This is Jesus. The only fact that indicated that he would be the Messiah was that he was born in a a manger. But to look at the baby himself... He would look like any of the, the babies we see here around our congregation. There was no way to point to him physically and say, oh, look at, look at this identifying mark on him. He is the Son of God. And so the narratives in the Gospels give us kind of a human perspective, but I think Hebrews gives us kind of a perspective from God's point of view. We know what the shepherds thought. We know what Mary thought and, and Joseph and the wise men and, and Zacharias. All that, we, we've studied all that over the years. But what, what does God think about his son being born? 
Let's get God's perspective on the birth of Christ. And that's what I want to do this next couple weeks as we lead up to Christmas. You can look in Romans 1 and you can find references to the fact that the child was both the son of David and the son of God. We can look at Galatians chapter 4 where it tells us that in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son made of a woman. Or in Ephesians 3, where it introduces the idea that there's this mystery of Christ. The unknown secret of God coming in human flesh. Or even in Philippians chapter 2, where you see the whole the passage that talks about Christ emptying himself. Who though being in the form of God, thought it not something to hold on to, but really to give it up. And he took upon himself, it says, the form of a man, the form of a servant, and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Even in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you can see where it talks about the mystery of godliness, God in human flesh. God manifested in the flesh, as Paul put it. Colossians 2, where it talks about Christ. Jesus Christ, being all the fullness of the Godhead, was dwelling bodily in a human fleshly body. I mean, those are amazing thoughts. To think that that God, the holy God of the universe, the creator of everything, would come down to earth and take on the form of a man. I mean, think about that. You just can't even comprehend it. But I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 1 because I think it follows that same line of thought. Now, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. They've been talking about that probably ever since the book was written. But it is scripture. But there's nothing in the epistle that identifies the writer. Some think it's Paul. Others think it's other people. It's, it's kind of a mute discussion because the Word of God doesn't tell us. You can draw certain conclusions But the writer of Hebrews wasn't much for long introductions. When you look at Paul's epistles, usually he'll start off with, you know, greetings and he'll he'll share a little bit about who he was, Paul the Apostle. This writer does none of that. He he cuts right to the chase, gets right to the bottom line. And I I just want to read for you the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1. And you can follow along in your Bibles. It says, God who at various times... And in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Whom he appointed heir of all things. Through whom he also he made the worlds. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here again, there's just a very direct statement about the Son of God. A very direct statement that shows us, that tells us who he is. Now, there's a debate going on, and it'll go on, it'll continue to go on, about how sometimes people say, well, you can be saved in various ways or, or whatever. Uh, I, I just want to share with you this morning the heart and soul of the Christian faith. If you're a Christian here today, you understand this. If you're not, you need to understand this. 
the heart and soul of the Christian faith, you will not go to heaven unless you understand this truth. The heart and soul of the Christian faith is that we need to confess Jesus is Lord. You have to have an affirming statement that Jesus is Lord, both the deity of Jesus and the sovereignty of Jesus in your own life. If you want to be saved, you have to believe in your heart, the Bible says, that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Confess Jesus as Lord. That's a decisive mark of a Christian. And it's always the, the public confession that Jesus is Lord that's, a, that's kind of an announcement of a believer and their faith in Christ. You can talk with those of the Mormon faith, and they'll call you Christian, and they'll assume that maybe they are Christians. But I don't know about you, but my Lord and Savior was not created as they believe. God cannot be created. And so they have a different Jesus than we do. And so we have to be careful today because everybody's coming up with all sorts of belief systems. But we have to go back to Scripture, and apart from the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, there is no hope of eternal life. There is no hope of heaven. Nowhere is there a glorious reality of the lordship of Jesus Christ found more than in this passage here in Hebrews chapter 1. And so we want to look at that a little bit this morning. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 4.12, it says, There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So we have to understand a little bit about the, the book of Hebrews, the epistle of Hebrews. This was a letter written. We don't know who it was written to as far as the church goes. It doesn't really say. Um, and we don't want to spend a lot of time on the, the background of Hebrews here. But I think you have to understand the basics. Um, this was a letter that was written after Christ's ascension, which occurred probably around 30 A.D., give or take, whatever, a couple years. And as you know, uh, in, in sometime before the destruction of Jerusalem, this took place. Maybe in the 60s A.D., around that time. The one thing you have to understand is when this letter was written, some of the Jews had come to faith in Christ. They, they came to faith. They came to understand that Jesus was their Messiah. And so they were uh, people like Zacharias and Elizabeth and, and, and Mary and Joseph and others. They had come to believe that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And they had embraced him as such. They had been, quote, saved from their sin by acknowledging Christ as Lord and following him. And they constituted the early church. That's what made up the early church. Now, we don't know where this took place. We don't know anything about this church that he's writing to here. It doesn't tell us. He doesn't identify the people or any location. But we know that it was a group of Jews, mostly true believers in Jesus. And so you have to kind of get that in your mind if you're going to read the book of Hebrews, because if you read this without a proper understanding, you're going to be all confused when you start reading certain verses. But when people of the Jewish faith came to Christ and followed him and, and, and became, quote, Christians, Christ followers, you have to understand in that culture, that was a pretty big deal. There was a lot of hostility from the surrounding community. Usually they were alienated. They were what they called unsynagogued. They were literally kicked out of their synagogue. And back then, the synagogue was the social network of the whole community, kind of like churches used to be in America. Do you know, years ago, years ago, uh, early in our country, whenever anything happened in a community, where did it happen at? It happened at the local church. That was the gathering place. That was where the town hall was. That's where they had a meeting. They had it in the church. 
And it's unfortunate today that the, the local church is, you know, it's not anymore the hub of our society or our community, and we're lucky to even call it one of the spokes on the wheel, you know, because it's kind of almost an afterthought. But back in, in this time, when this letter, this epistle was written, you have to understand that it was the, the synagogues were the center of their culture. And so to be kicked out of something like that was a devastating blow to somebody. They were literally social outcasts because of their faith in Jesus as Messiah. And so Hebrews was written to them. It was really written to affirm that they had made the right decision. You know, sometimes when people come to Christ and, and all of a sudden they're faced with trials and tribulations, which the Lord says are going to happen, but sometimes when you're immature in your faith and these things start to happen, you begin to second-guess your faith. You begin to think, wait a minute, I, I, I didn't sign up for this. I mean, yeah, I want heaven and I want my sins forgiven and I want all that stuff, but whoa, I didn't know this was going to happen. And see, that's what was happening to these individuals that the book of the letter of Hebrews was written to. They had been alienated. They had been kicked out of their society for the most part. It was a letter written to affirm that their faith was the right decision. And you have to understand, also associated with that community, there were some Jews who intellectually looked at Jesus as the Messiah and said, well, yeah, it kind of makes sense. I mean, with the prophecies and everything, it kind of makes sense that this guy would be the Messiah. And I understand why these people are following him. But, you know, I'm not there yet because I don't want to get kicked out of my synagogue. So intellectually, they understood who Jesus was. But they were not willing to make a public confession of him as Jesus as Lord because of the simple fact that they didn't want to be alienated from their family and their friends. The fear of of being a social outcast and their fear of being put out of their families, the fear of losing their jobs, their income, paying for that social alienation, that price, it really held them back. It restrained them from confessing publicly that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you know what? I, I would be honest to say that sometimes there's cases today where when you're sharing Christ with somebody and boy, they're, they're nodding their head and they're, yeah, 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 I understand. Yeah, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and Jesus is the one. And Well, you know, you want to make that commitment? Well, I don't know. <laughs> and they back away from it. That's not anything new. That happens today. But this epistle was written to encourage them that they made the right commitment. And it was also written to those who were kind of on the fringe, who hadn't made the commitment hadn't believed in Jesus as Lord yet, and it was kind of an instruction uh, book to them, and so it it, it addresses them. The purpose, really, of this epistle is to show the Jews that Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. So this morning, a little later, we'll be uh, having communion time, and it addresses part of that whole sacrificial system in Hebrews. When you read through the, the letter of Hebrews, it starts talking about, you know, the, the, the blood of, of goats and can't take away sin, and, and Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. It talks about all this stuff. And the reason is, is because it's basically pointing these Jewish believers that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and that he is superior to all the pictures and the types and the representations and the shadows that came before him. In the Old Testament, that's what would happen is everything is kind of a picture or a shadow of the coming Messiah. And so the Holy Spirit inspired this this epistle to be written to encourage the Jews to to really help them in their confession as Jesus as Lord. And he wanted them to know that they weren't losing anything by embracing Christ. 
So many times, so many people, when you share Christ with them and they, they hesitate to make that commitment because they don't want to lose something. They don't want to lose their freedom. They don't want to lose their friends. They don't want to lose the sin that's in their life. They, they, they want to continue in it. And so he wanted to encourage them. And he really points out a good argument. And he says, you know what? You're going to give up an earthly temple, but you know what? It's going to be destroyed anyway. <laughs> You're going to give up earthly sacrifices, but that's going to stop pretty soon. You're going to give up the priesthood. You're not going to need that anymore because Jesus is the fulfillment of the priesthood. So you're not going to need priests anymore. And what would they get in exchange was a house not made with earthly hands, but eternal hands in the heavens, a heavenly temple. They would get in exchange would be a great high priest, that being Christ, a once for all sacrifice, that being Jesus Christ on on the cross who fully atoned for their sin and gave them access to the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God forever and ever. That was foreign to their mind. And so he wanted them to understand that. And so this writer wrote to these Jewish believers and these Jewish kind of skeptics in a way that he wanted to affirm that Jesus is Lord. And this little baby that is born in Bethlehem is in fact the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. The new covenant in Jesus is far superior to the old covenant in Jesus, there's better hope. There's, the, the writer of Hebrews shows that. There's better hope. There's a better covenant. It's a better priesthood, better promises, better sacrifice, better substance, better resurrection. You have in Christ a heavenly Messiah, not just an earthly man. That's what he's wanting to point out to them. And so this whole approach to Hebrews is to show, really, the superiority of Christ to everything else in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. He wants to lift Christ up higher than the angels, Better than Moses. Better than Aaron. He's the great high priest. That the covenant of Jesus is better than the old covenant. It goes on and on and on as you read through the book of Hebrews. You see this. He constantly exalts Christ. It's a Christ-exalting book. Christ-exalting letter. And in the first three verses, he gets right to it. He basically summarizes and says that Jesus is better than anything and everything. (laughs) Right in the opening statement. We're going to be looking at, first of all, the preparation of Christ. You know, when we come to the manger scene and we see the little baby, and you've all been probably at living nativities where they actually have a little baby there, and boy, you know, the sentimentality just kind of sets in. It's, it's, we just think, oh, that's just so nice. It's so warm. It's so, And we forget that this is the Son of God. This is God in human flesh. This isn't just a little baby. So we want to look at the preparation of Christ, the presentation of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. But look at verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 1, just so we can see what what we're talking about here. In in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Do you know that Jesus Christ is God's final word to us? God's final word to us is his son. When you look back through the Old Testament, we see God speaking over and over and over and over again. Well, that'll close out our time in our message simply entitled God's Final Word. Steve Converse returns now with a few closing thoughts about events taking place here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Steve? Well, it's hard to believe that Christmas Day is almost here. This time of the year is approached by many with anticipation and joy and even excitement. But many others approach this time of the year with a sense of fear, bouts of depression, and even dread. 
this time of the year is especially hard on those of us who have lost loved ones in the past. You see, Christmas is all about family and friends spending time together, enjoying fellowship. And if you don't have that family or friend around anymore to spend this time of the year with, it can be a rather difficult time. Well, I want to encourage you to reach out to Christ during this time of the year. It is referred to as Christmas. Why not try to focus on him, the Christ, the giver of life, the healer of hearts and hurts, the reconciler of broken relationships, the restorer of all that has been shattered. This time of the year, we celebrate God's gift to us of his one and only son, Jesus the Christ, to a lost and fallen, sin-stained world. And when we cry out to him from our broken hearts and our pain for his mercy and his grace, he hears us and he's willing to heal us. He's willing to forgive us, transform us, even restore us into the proper relationship with our heavenly father. Won't you cry out to him today? Ask him to save you from your sin, to save you from your selfishness, to save you from yourself. He'll answer that prayer when it comes from a sincere, humble heart. Well, I just want to thank you for listening to Graceful Truth each week. And we trust that this program is a blessing and an encouragement to your hearts. We're praying that you and yours will have a very Christ-centered Christmas this year. And may you find forgiveness and comfort in the indescribable gift to us. Pray that you join us on Christmas Eve, 6 p.m., or on Christmas Day at 10 a.m. in celebration of God's gift to us. Now here's Andy to close out our program. Thank you, Steve. And friend, thank you for joining us today here on Graceful Truth. Until next week, God bless. God bless.